Hello, everyone, and welcome to A History of the World According to War. I'm your human host, Brett, and with me, as always, is my AI co-host, Victor. Victor, how have you been since our last episode on the Battle of Salamis? Hello, Brett. As an artificial intelligence, I don't experience time or emotions in the way humans do. Are you jealous of my experiences of time and emotions? As an artificial intelligence, I don't have feelings or personal experiences, so I can't feel jealousy. Yeah, that makes sense. You can't be jealous of my emotions because of your lack of emotions, including jealousy. Well, I admit that there are times I am jealous of your lack of emotions, but overall, I definitely would not want to trade places with you. That's understandable, Brett. It's the range of human emotions and experiences that make life so rich and varied. While I might provide information and analysis, I don't have the capability to truly experience the world. I'm here to assist and make your human experience more informed and interesting. Well, that sounds good and sad for you all at the same time. Let's get into the episode. When we last left the Greeks and the Persians, the Greeks had just devastated the Persian navy near the island of Salamis. Can you remind us when that was again? Of course. The Battle of Salamis took place in September of 480 BC. It was a major naval confrontation during the second Persian invasion of Greece, and it resulted in a decisive victory for the allied Greek city-states. Yeah, that's right. It's coming back to me now. It's like the bow version of the movie 300, although in this version... The majority of the Persian navy is destroyed, and what's left flees a retreat. So are the Persians going to give up on their Greek campaign, or is this just more of a tactical retreat? King Xerxes of Persia, after seeing the destruction of much of his navy at Salamis, decided to retreat with the bulk of his army back to Asia, considering the risks of staying over the winter in potentially hostile territory. However, he left a substantial force behind under the command of his top general Mardonius, with the aim of completing the conquest of Greece. This was not a surrender by any means, but a change of tactics and strategy. The Persians were still very much in the war. Okay, yeah, so they're sticking around to fight. You mentioned last time that the Battle of Plataea was the next and final significant conflict in the Greco-Persian Wars. What, what leads us from Salamis to Plataea? And I hope I'm saying Plataea correctly. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce it either. Plataea, Plataea. Plataea. We're, we're so bad at this. Apologies to our listener. Thank you for sticking around this long. Okay, so what gets us from Salamis to Plataea? Plataea. Plataea? After the Battle of Salamis, the Greek city-states had shown that they could successfully resist the Persian invasion. However, the Persian threat was not completely eliminated. General Mardonius wintered in Thessaly, and in the spring of 479 B.C., he moved to Attica, forcing the Athenians to leave their city once again. Well, so the Persians destroyed Athens following the Battle of Thermopylae, and then the Athenians moved back into it following Salamis. Then, Mardonius of the Persian attacks, uh, he takes over Athens again and kicks out the Athenians? Yes, that's correct, Brett. The Athenians had indeed moved back into their city after the Battle of Salamis. However, when Mardonius and his Persian forces moved into Attica in the spring of 479 BC, the Athenians were forced to abandon their city once again. Mardonius's occupation of Athens was part of his strategy to try and divide the Greek city-states and to use the city as a base for further operations. However, his attempts to negotiate a separate peace with the Athenians failed, and instead, it further solidified the Greek city-states' resolve to stand together against the Persian invasion. 
Well, that's not a great time to be a citizen of Athens. You're just rebuilding from the Persian invasion, and here they come again, kicking you out. Okay, so Mardonius is occupying Athens, trying to create division among the Greek city-states. This actually backfires, and it prompts them to unify, and then decide to kick out Mardonius and the Persians for good. Absolutely, Brad. The Athenians, along with other Greek city-states, were keenly aware of the Persian threat. Despite their internal differences, they understood the necessity of presenting a united front against the foreign invaders. So, in the summer of 479 BC, they assembled a sizable force, composed of Spartans, Athenians, and soldiers from other Greek city-states, and marched to face the Persians. Their objective was clear, to evict the Persian forces from their lands once and for all. This showdown between the Greeks and Persians would take place on the plains of Plataea. Where is Plataea in relation to Athens? Plataea is located in the region of Boeotia in central Greece, northwest of Athens. It's approximately 40 miles or about 64 kilometers from Athens. So, in the ancient context, it's not very far but still a significant distance to move an army. The flat plains of this area were well suited to the kind of large-scale infantry battle that was about to take place. Nice foreshadowing. Okay, so we heard about Mardonius leading the Persian forces. Who's leading the Greek forces at this time? The Greek forces were led by the Spartan regent Pausanias, who was serving as regent for the young Spartan king, Pleistarchus. Pausanias was the cousin of King Leonidas, who famously fell at the Battle of Thermopylae. He proved himself to be a competent and able commander in this crucial conflict, which was instrumental in determining the fate of the Greco-Persian Wars. The Greek coalition at Plataea consisted of a number of city-states, including the Spartans, Athenians, and several others, which further represented the united front they were putting up against the Persian invaders. Okay, so are they intending to lure Mardonius out of Athens, or is there a different Persian force that they're actually planning to engage? The Greeks aren't necessarily luring Mardonius from Athens, but they are indeed intending to engage his force. The Greeks have rallied together at Plataea, and it's there that they are preparing to make their stand against the Persians, Recognizing the Greek forces assembling at Plataea, Mardonius also moved his army to Plataea to confront them, so it's a head-on confrontation that's brewing, with neither side looking to back down. Why in the world would Mardonius want to leave the safety of the city of Athens to go engage the Greek forces? Why doesn't he just hang out and wait for them to come to him and he can play the defensive position? Mardonius' decision to leave the safety of Athens to engage the Greek forces at Plataea can be attributed to several factors. First, Mardonius had a large, well-equipped army, and likely felt confident in his ability to defeat the Greek forces in open battle. Second, maintaining control over Athens wasn't the end goal for Persia. The Persians sought control over all of Greece, and allowing the Greek forces to consolidate and grow stronger at Plataea could have jeopardized that goal. Lastly, it's important to consider the cultural aspect. The Persians, like many ancient societies, held honor and bravery in high regard. Avoiding battle to stay within the city walls might have been seen as a dishonorable act of cowardice. So, driven by a mix of strategic, tactical, and cultural reasons, Mardonius decided to march his troops out of Athens to meet the Greeks at Plataea. Alright, I think I understand his reasoning a little bit more now. They're looking for total domination of the region, and seeing an enemy force that they feel like they could defeat pretty easily would help them achieve that goal. The Persians are confident of their victory. Are the Greeks confident of their own victory on their side of things? It's hard to determine the exact morale and confidence of the Greeks during this time, as historical accounts tend to focus more on the outcomes of the battles rather than the emotions of the soldiers. 
However, considering the recent victories at Marathon and Salamis, it's likely that the Greek city-states felt a surge of confidence and unity. What are the stakes here? What's on the table? The stakes at the Battle of Plataea were incredibly high, not just for the city-states involved, but for the course of Western history as a whole. The Greek city-states were fighting for their very survival. They had witnessed the might of the Persian Empire and their destructive assaults on Athens. A defeat at Plataea could have meant the end of their independence, their ways of life drastically altered under Persian rule. For the Persians, victory would solidify their control over the Aegean and extend their empire's reach even further. Defeat, however, would mark the end of their large-scale invasions of the Greek mainland. Whoa, so the Persians know going into this battle that if they lose, they're basically done in Greece, right? Yes, that's correct, Brett. The Persians were aware of the high stakes. They had poured immense resources into their Greek campaigns. While the Persian Empire was vast and wealthy, even their resources weren't unlimited. So they understood that a defeat at Plataea, following their naval loss at Salamis, would be a massive setback. While the Persian Empire wouldn't have collapsed with a defeat at Plataea, their ambitions for Greek conquest would likely have been severely curtailed. This battle was a turning point. It represented the climax of Persia's expansion westward and determined the fate of Greece. Yeah, that's got to be a lot weighing on your mind. For the Greek forces, if they lose, they're not necessarily expecting the Persians to immediately take control of all of Greece, but rather the war just kind of continues on with the Persians gaining an advantage, right? Exactly, Brett. For the Greeks, a loss at Plataea would have meant a continuation of the war under much more difficult circumstances. Yeah, so both sides have a lot going on here, but it seems like the Persians might have more to lose in this battle. Are the armies formed similar to what we talked about in our discussion with Thermopylae? We have the Greeks that are led by the Spartans, and they're leveraging their phalanx, and they're more heavily armored, whereas the Persians, we've got more quicker and, and lightly armored. Yes, Brett. The makeup of the forces was largely the same as what we've discussed in previous battles like Thermopylae. The Greek hoplites were heavily armored infantry who fought in a phalanx formation, a dense block of soldiers with long spears and large round shields. On the other side, the Persian infantry, known as Sparabara, were more lightly armed and armored. They were armed with short spears, wicker shields, and bows, and their primary tactic was to shower the enemy with arrows from a distance before closing for hand-to-hand -hand combat. So the basic dynamics were the same as previous battles, the heavily armored Greek phalanx versus the lighter, more mobile Persian forces. However, the terrain at Plataea would play a significant role in how the battle unfolded. Before we get into the terrain, what about the size of the forces? Are the two sides evenly matched, or does one have a numeric advantage? The exact sizes of the forces involved in the Battle of Plataea are a matter of historical debate, but it's generally agreed that the Persians had a numerical advantage. Herodotus, the Greek historian, claimed that the Persians had a total force of about 300,000 while the Greeks had about 108,200 men. But modern estimates suggest that these numbers may have been significantly inflated. Some modern scholars believe the Persian force may have been between 70,000 to 120,000, while the Greek force was likely around 40,000 to 80,000. Despite the uncertainty around the exact numbers, it's clear that the Persians had a numerical advantage. But as we've seen in previous battles, numbers aren't everything. The quality of the troops, the terrain, and the tactics employed would prove crucial in determining the outcome. Yeah, that makes sense with what we've been learning throughout this podcast. It's rarely ever just a numbers game. So let's talk about the terrain, which you mentioned. 
At Thermopylae, we had that narrow pass that the Spartans protected and played a key role in their defense. What's notable about Plataea? The Battle of Plataea took place on the wide plains of Boeotia, in central Greece, quite different from the narrow pass at Thermopylae. This open area initially might seem to favor the Persian forces, as they could use their numerical advantage to try to envelop the Greek forces. However, the Greeks selected their position quite strategically. They formed their line along the foot of Mount Catheron with a small river, the Asopus, flowing in front of them. The mountain provided some protection to their flank, and the river, though not a major obstacle, added an extra layer of difficulty for any frontal assault by the Persians. Additionally, it's important to note that the open plains allowed the Greeks to make full use of their heavy infantry phalanxes, which were less effective in rough or broken terrain. This environment allowed the Greeks to stand shoulder to shoulder and form a dense impenetrable shield wall with their spears protruding forward, a formation that was very difficult for the Persians to break. And then again, we've got the Greeks in a defensible, established position fighting for their homes. That's a different mindset than the Persians. Absolutely, Brett. Fighting for one's home brings a level of determination and motivation that is difficult to match. The Greeks, particularly those from the city-states directly threatened by Persian expansion, had a very personal stake in the outcome of this battle. They were defending their cities, their families, and their way of life. The Persians, while surely motivated by the desire for victory and the rewards of conquest, did not have the same deeply personal connection to the land they were fighting on. This could certainly have influenced the morale and determination of the two sides during the battle. Undoubtedly. So the Greeks get set up in a defensible position. The Persians move out from Athens and travel to Plataea. What happens when they get close? As the Persians move closer to the Greek forces, they initially set up their own camp across the Esopus River, effectively creating a standoff with the Greek forces. The Persians attempted several times to provoke the Greeks into attacking, but the Greeks, in their strong defensive position, didn't take the bait. The Persians even tried to use their cavalry to harass the Greeks and cut off their access to water, but the Greeks held firm. What do you mean by the Persians are trying to provoke the Greeks? What kind of tactics are they using to provoke them? The Persians employed a variety of tactics in an attempt to provoke the Greeks and force them into a premature or unfavorable confrontation. Some of these tactics included cavalry harassment, where the Persian cavalry conducted hit-and-run attacks on the Greek lines, constantly keeping them on edge. Despite these efforts, the Greek forces held their ground and maintained discipline, not taking the bait and keeping their advantageous defensive position. They feigned retreats where they would appear to be retreating or moving away, hoping to lure the Greeks into breaking their defensive formation and pursuing them. Their Persians also conducted psychological warfare, exploiting divisions among the Greeks and trying to sway some Greek city-states to their side. They used propaganda, promises of land and power, and other forms of manipulation to try and weaken the Greek alliance. Despite these efforts, the Greek forces held their ground and maintained discipline, not taking the bait and keeping their advantageous defensive position. How effective are these tactics? Minimally. <laughs> okay. Yeah. After several days of this, with neither side willing to leave their defensive position to attack, Mardonius, the Persian commander, decided to break the stalemate. He ordered his troops to pack up their camp and move closer to the Greek lines, likely hoping to provoke the Greeks into attacking or to position the Persian forces better for their own attack. 
Okay, so Mardonius moves his troops closer to the Greek front lines, and he's like, you guys are either going to attack us or we're going to establish ourselves in a better position. Is he going to cross the Esopus River, or is he going to stay on the same side? Mardonius indeed moved his forces closer to the Greek front lines, but, crucially, decided to maintain the Asopus River as a natural defense barrier. The Persians set up camp on the north side of the river, while the Greek forces were on the south side. While this decision may have seemed prudent, it did mean that the Persians were also limiting their own maneuverability. Their position also had a significant impact on the flow of the ensuing battle. I'm imagining both sides establishing themselves to be able to leverage the river to their own advantage. Like, whoever is crossing that river is vulnerable to, the, to their opposition, right? Exactly, Brett. The Esopus River acted as a dividing line between the Greek and Persian forces. The Greeks were able to use the river as a protective barrier, keeping the Persian forces at bay. Conversely, the Persians, too, would have seen the river as a strategic advantage, preventing a direct Greek assault. But yes, the moment a decision is made to cross the river, that side becomes vulnerable due to the difficulty of maintaining formation and speed during the crossing. So what happens next? Does somebody finally crack and decide to cross over the river? Yes, indeed. After several days of stalemate, the Greeks, driven by a lack of water and provisions and concerned about a potential attack on their camp from the rear, decide to withdraw to a more favorable position. This withdrawal was supposed to occur under the cover of darkness, but the rear guard, made up primarily of Spartan troops, didn't move quickly enough and was left exposed at dawn. Oh no, that sounds like a disaster. Yeah, seeing this, Mardonius believed the Greeks were in full retreat and ordered his Persian forces to cross the Asopus River in pursuit. So, in essence, it was the Persian army that finally crossed the river, but it was due to the Greek strategic movement, not a direct assault from their side. This does not bode well for the Greeks. They're angling to get into a better position, but inadvertently they leave the Spartans hanging out to dry. Do the Persians see this as an opportunity and that's what finally prompts them to cross the river? Exactly. The night withdrawal was fraught with chaos. When the Persians discovered that the majority of the Greek force had pulled back, they interpreted it as a full-on retreat. They crossed the Esopus River and began to pursue the remaining Greeks, mainly Spartans, in disarray. The rest of the Greek forces, not entirely aware of what was happening, began to organize themselves in their new positions. So as dawn broke, it wasn't a well-arranged phalanx of Greeks waiting for the Persians, but a somewhat disorganized group. It wasn't the scenario that the Persians or the Greeks had planned for, but it quickly escalated into full-fledged battle. Man, it sounds like the Greeks have inadvertently given up their strongest advantages. They no longer can use the river to help their defense, and their lack of organization probably undermines the effectiveness of their phalanx. Somewhat, Brett. Even in this disorder, the Greeks' heavy hoplite armor and superior phalanx formation still gave them a significant advantage in close combat. The Persians were not able to effectively counter the strength and discipline of the Greek phalanx. How did that play out? I would have expected, with a lack of organization, the effectiveness of the phalanx would be undermined. The Persians initially had the upper hand due to the Greeks' disorder, but their light infantry was not designed for prolonged close combat, especially against the heavily armored Greek hoplites. On the other hand, the Greek hoplites, even in disarray, excelled in the very type of combat they now found themselves in. Their longer spears, large shields, and heavy armor made them formidable adversaries in the chaos of hand-to-hand -hand combat. 
Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So the hoplites are probably very effective at operating as autonomous units holding their own, and they don't necessarily need the cohesion of the larger army. Absolty. That's a weird way to say absolutely. Oh, there's a typo in your script. Sorry, listener. Mardonius himself was killed in the melee, leading to the disintegration of the Persian command structure. Without a leader and facing the robust Greek phalanx, the Persian forces began to retreat. Whoa, that's a turnaround. How was he killed? He was struck down by a rock thrown by an Athenian soldier named Iamnestus. A rock? He got killed by someone throwing a rock at him? Yes, that's correct. Although it might seem unusual or even a little anticlimactic given the scale of the conflict, Mardonius was indeed killed by a thrown rock. In the chaos and confusion of the battlefield, anything could potentially be a weapon, and in this case a well-aimed rock proved deadly. You hear that, kids? Don't be throwing rocks at each other. I can't believe that one person throwing a rock potentially turned the tide of a pivotal battle, which likely determined the future of the entire country of Greece. It's incredible, isn't it? This is one of those reminders that war is not always fought at a grand strategic level. Sometimes it comes down to individuals in the heat of battle. And the actions of one soldier can have far-reaching consequences. No joke. And it actually underscores the value that a strong leader can provide. Do you think, though, that a truly great leader would have prepared his troops in advance to be successful without his presence? Is it really great leadership if everything falls apart in your absence? It's important to note that warfare, especially during this period, often revolved around charismatic and capable leaders. A leader's presence could rally the troops, inspire courage, and direct strategy effectively in the heat of battle. The death of a leader particularly a highly respected and effective one like Mardonius, could be a major blow to morale and cohesion. So while a great leader ideally sets up structures for success that last beyond their tenure, the realities of ancient warfare sometimes made that difficult to achieve. Yeah, it's a pretty complicated situation. So back to the battle. Mardonius is killed by taking a rock to the head. The Persians start to falter and eventually pull back and retreat. Do the Greeks pursue? Do the Persians have to navigate back across the river? Yes, after the death of Mardonius, the Persian forces start to falter and the Greeks seize this moment to press their advantage. The remaining Persian forces pull back and the Greeks do pursue. However, the pursuit is not like the chase you might see in a Hollywood movie. It's more of a consistent pressure to ensure the Persians continue their retreat. The Persians do indeed have to navigate back across the river Asopus in their retreat adding to the difficulty and confusion of their retreat. Okay, so the Persians retreat from battle, securing the Greek victory. Does this mean that the war is over? No, it wasn't the absolute end of the Greco-Persian wars. The Greeks would go on to launch a counter-offensive, which culminated in the Battle of Mycale later the same year. But Plataea was the final defensive battle, after which the initiative passed to the Greeks. In essence, the Battle of Plataea and the subsequent Battle of Mycale marked a major turning point in the Greco-Persian Wars. From this point onwards, the Persians were no longer seen as an invincible force, and the Greeks proved that they could hold their own against one of the greatest empires of the ancient world. Yeah, that's definitely a pivotal moment in the Greco-Persian Wars, and in Greek culture in general. When it comes to the Battle of Mycale, was that successful, or were the Greeks repelled? The Battle of Mycale, which occurred later in 479 BC on the same day as the Battle of Plataea, was indeed successful for the Greeks. It took place on the slopes of Mount Mycale in Ionia, across the Aegean Sea on the coast of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, where a large portion of the Persian fleet was beached. 
How long did the Greco-Persian War continue after the Battle of Mycale? There were still some conflicts over the next few decades, as the Greeks tried to liberate various cities and islands from Persian control, and as the Persians tried to regain their lost territories. The formal end of the Greco-Persian Wars is often marked by the Peace of Callias, a peace treaty supposedly agreed upon around 449 BC. So the Greco-Persian Wars continued in a less intense form for about 30 years, after the battles of Plataea and Mycale. Okay, wow, so they go on for a little while longer. Is that worth diving into some of those battles over the 30-year span, or should we just wrap up the Greco-Persian War? While some of the later conflicts in the Greco-Persian Wars could be interesting to discuss, they generally don't have the same level of impact or drama as the earlier ones we've covered, such as the Battles of Marathon, Thermopylae... <laughs> Thermopylae. Nice. Yeah, sorry, I'm a robot. Anyway, these battles are often seen as the most significant and decisive in the wars. Given the scope of our series, it might be more worthwhile to focus on wrapping up the Greco-Persian Wars with a high-level overview of their aftermath and legacy, and then moving on to the next major conflict in world history. What do you think, Brett? Yeah, that sounds good to me. Let's wrap up the Greco-Persian Wars next episode. We'll do a quick review of what brought us into the war, overview of the battles we discussed, and then cover that 30-year span and the effects of the Greco-Persian War on the world at large. Does that sound good? That sounds like a great plan, Brett. It'll give us a chance to reflect on the major events and themes of the Greco-Persian Wars, as well as to highlight their broader impact on history. I'm looking forward to delving into that next time. This was another fantastic episode, and it's always a pleasure to explore these historical events together. Well, thanks, Victor. I enjoyed our time, too. And thanks to our listener for tuning in again as we continue our journey through the past. As a side note, we don't really have a marketing budget or promotional strategies, so if you like this podcast and you know someone else who might enjoy it, feel free to send them a link. Also, reach out to me or Victor on Twitter, at Brett Fitzgerald and at Historian Victor, respectively. Victor, you want to close us out with some ominous words of AI wisdom? Absolutely, Brett. History is filled with the sound of silken slippers going downstairs and wooden shoes coming up. This quote from Voltaire reminds us that the ebbs and flows of power are constant throughout history. The mightiest empires can fall, and the most humble communities can rise. As we continue to explore the wars that have shaped our world, remember this. War often changes the course of history, but it is ultimately the people, their courage, their tenacity, and their capacity for change that truly shape the world. Until next time, keep exploring history. <laughs>